<clears throat> and yet we will see this is all under God's sovereignty. That, that's why God, it's kind of easy after the fact to say, that's what God meant to do. Actually, we died that whole thing. I was all through the plane. We didn't lose. We meant to, you know, let the team take the try. We meant to fumble the ball at that point. That's always easy to do after the fact. That is why God has been telling throughout Scripture. Prophecy after prophecy and foreshadow after foreshadow so that when it finally happens, Jesus can say, you are fulfilling the Scriptures already written. Let's do it. Let's go. The scriptures have some fulfilling to do. Let's go and look into them, and it has all been written down beforehand. So Jesus has been delivered into the hands of sinners. We will look at five categories of the sinners to whom he is betrayed, and we will see God's sovereign purpose over it all. Can you look with me to verse 43? And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of his twelve. And with him, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under God. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against your brother with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in your temple, teaching, and you did not see me then. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all, referring to his disciples, they all left him and fled. And a young man had followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes had come together. And Peter had followed him in a distance right into the yard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself with fire. Now, the chief priests... And the whole council was seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many had borne false witness about him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even this, even in this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst. And asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is, it, what is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some people began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. May God bless the reading of his own powerful and word in our midst this morning. Amen. 
Jesus is here, as he said in verse 41. He is here delivered, betrayed, given over by the Father. There's a, there's a period earlier on in Mark's Gospel where Jesus says that he must be delivered over and he's going to be spit upon, tried, executed, and on the third day he would rise. This is one of the times when he clearly told his disciples what was going to happen, and if you know what he meant, they were still in utter confusion about his clear teaching. They couldn't make sense of it. And yet there's this word that he uses there, which is to be delivered over, and commentators look at that and say it's, it's actually quite inappropriate for this word to be used if it's Judas. And this word actually seems to refer to something more grand, more, more cosmic. There's something bigger than just Judas betraying. And in fact, what they, what they point to is really, this is Jesus saying, I'm not being delivered ultimately by Judas. I'm being ultimately delivered by the crowds that take me. I'm not ultimately being executed by the Sanhedrin or by the Romans. Ultimately, Jesus is delivered over into the hour of his judgment and execution by the Father himself. This is all God's will. He has been delivered, firstly, into the hand of sinner number one, Judas Iscariot. We read this in verse 42 through 45, where Jesus was, was speaking, and while yet he was speaking, Judas came to him, verse 43, and with a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and elders, and he, the betrayer, that's his name now, the betrayer, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he at once walked up to him and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Then this kiss in Jewish uh, uh, culture, maybe, maybe some of us are from uh, islander cultures or eastern cultures, and we are still very much familiar with the, 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 the sight of men in public holding hands. Like, let's not get uh, confused. We see that plenty in the West. I'm just saying it's not necessarily a sign of romantic love in other cultures where men hold hands, they greet with kisses, they, they hold one another like, in ways that, that we might not be comfortable with as men in the West. Uh, and, and, yet, and yet this is what G Judas is doing. He's greeting Jesus with a sign of affection, friendship, uh, a, a love, and, and, and close intimacy. Like a best friend would greet a friend with a large kiss and hug after a long trip away. Here's Judas, almost walking up to Jesus glibly out of the shadows. Where have you been, Jesus? I was looking for you. I'm so glad I found you. He's, he's putting on a show. He calls him Rabbi, the, the name meaning teacher. You're my teacher. The, the one to whom I am a disciple, my, my friend, my buddy, my pal, come here. He, he gives him a handshake. He, he jumps in for a hug. He gives him in their day the kiss on the cheek. And this was a sign. This is a, this is a symbol of how, how deep and how, how, how horrible his betrayal was. Everything that Jesus had given to him, he just turned around to utilize against Jesus. The very fact that they hear is, is, is a sign of the, of the intimacy of the betrayed. I mean, we looked at this when Judas was betraying Jesus, and yet he was the guest of honor at Jesus' Passover. We looked at that and how deep the betrayal goes. Well, this is a secret meeting place where Jesus and his disciples would go so they couldn't be bothered by crowds. So the only people who know that they gather here is, is Judas and the other 11 disciples. So no doubt Judas had probably taken the crowd under the cover of night, secretly gone to the house that they had had the Passover, fully expecting to be able to arrest him in the house. And when they found that they weren't there, he, he said, I, I know where they might be. I know their meeting place. You know what Jesus is doing? He's probably praying. He'll be so easy to capture. He'll be praying. I know the disciples. They'll probably be asleep. It'll be easy done. 
And so Judas, with this, this intimate knowledge that only a best friend would have, betrays Jesus, the Son of Man. Jesus' enemies needed Judas. We remember the very first verse of chapter 14, it is said that the, the, the leaders of the Jews had said that they want to arrest Jesus, but it had to be in secret and not in public. And they were trying to avoid doing it during the feast when, when millions of people were in the city because they did not want to start a riot knowing that tens of thousands of people had been healed by Jesus and loved to hear him preach. They knew that that was dangerous politically. They didn't want to do that. And so they needed a secret arrest. Judas gives them that opportunity. Without Judas, there is no arrest. Without Judas' betrayal, there is no death of the Holy One of Israel on the cross. And here, the Son of Man is betrayed by sinner Judas. Though he put up a, a big display of being one of the twelve, being one of the holy ones, being one of the miracle workers, being one of the demon outcasters, yet here he is, identified by Jesus as a sinner, identified by Peter as the betrayer. And so Jesus is arrested. In verse 46, we start seeing the, the next group of sinners into whose hands Jesus is betrayed. Verse 46. <clears throat> and they laid hands on him and seized him. And one of those who stood near by Jesus drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus says, Have you come out against me as a robber who with swords and clubs to capture me? Back in verse 40, uh, 43, we saw that Judas, one of the twelve, came with the crowd with swords and clubs. This is, the, this is the reality of the situation as, as they all come around him and Jesus says, I was with you in the temple daily teaching. You didn't seize me then. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Be fulfilled. As, as you put all of the accounts of the gospels together, you realize this is quite, quite a large crowd that comes to Jesus. Different uh, what, uh, gospels will include different details, but we can put it together with a mental picture like this. Judas was at the front. As he came and led them to the place, he only knew the road's end. He only knew the secret place he needed to be praying. He found him in a vast garden. He was leading the way. And then behind him would have been the, the representative or the servant of the high priest. That's who, that's who Peter stabs in the head. That's him. He would have been there representing the high priest. And then with him, there was, uh, there was the Jewish, uh, Jewish soldiers. This would have been the temple police who, was, who were in charge of, of keeping order and, and all of that in the temple day. So you've got those guys who are Levites. So the holy men set apart to protect the holiness of the temple. Just note the irony here. Here they are in the, in the, in the garden. And, and, and with them was also a cohort of Romans. These guys would have been uh, uh, just near the temple. There was a large um, Roman uh, sort of a, 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 a fortress, if you will, and, and they would have about 600 soldiers in them. It's hard to reason how many would have been with them, but then their job was literally to make sure that Jewish false prophets and Jewish uprisings and revolts and all that sort of thing, that was quashed. That was, that, was, that was their job to make sure it didn't happen. So, so it's really in their job description to go and arrest guys like Jesus according to how they view Jesus. So maybe the full 600 came, maybe just a, an army of 300, and we might think surely they just took one or two, all of that was overkill, but this is the point that Jesus is making. The whole crowd is absolute overkill. You had men there who would have had Roman swords, you would have had the, the Levites with their Jewish swords, you would have had the crowds who didn't 
have a sword for their job description. They just, they just got wooden clubs. That's what the, the word means there. They, they had swords. They had clubs. It is as if they had come against a small army, a small militia, and they were ready for warfare. It was absolute overkill. It was totally unmerited. Maybe you've seen accounts or read stories or, or you're in a, a history buff, and you know that this is a, this is a common theme. Tyrants love using coercive force. They don't care about conscience, they don't care about freedom, they don't care about anything else. They love using excessive force because the guilty conscience in power must force people to obey. Now, a guilty conscience knows that truth will topple their arguments. They know that public discourse and discussion and an open display of the truth, whether this is, this is a, a, a father in the home or an employer in the workplace or a pastor at church or, 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 or a tyrant ruling over people in a civil magistrate, tyrants who oppose people and have a guilty conscience knowing they're in the wrong love using force to intimidate and to strike fear. This is a common theme that we see throughout Scripture. And here they are coming completely unmerited against 12 guys, Jesus and his disciples. <clears throat> and Jesus is saying in verse 49, if I really was public enemy number one, like he's got his hands tied down, he's been, he's been roughed up and he's, he's held by the crowd, and he says, if I was public enemy number one, right, this is like coming after the Philippines with a nuke, okay, total overkill. If we really merited this kind of reaction and destruction, why did you not arrest me when I was literally doing Bible studies next to the police station? Well, what's the deal? Obviously, Jesus is putting onto them the fact that they are guilty. They know that this is not a, an appropriate use of force. The excess of force is coming out of their guilty conscience. Now, Jesus is probably crying out over the crowd of soldiers to the Sanhedrin members up the back. Right? So those are the guys that the, 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 the verse 43 tells us were the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. These are the guys who we'll see very soon make up the crowd called the Sanhedrin, the most official judgment, uh, sort of like a Supreme Court panel, a High Court of Australia panel of judges. They've come to make sure the arrest is, uh, is effective because the last time they sent uh, soldiers to go and arrest Jesus, the soldiers came back, half converted, saying, you just don't hear a guy prince like that and then arrest him. We could not get near him. He struck fear into our hearts. So, so they come along this time. And Jesus is calling out over the crowd. Hey, you guys cowering up the back in the shadows. I know you're here. Is this really what I merit? A useful Bible teacher, prophet? You know that you're in the wrong. That you are in this moment a sinner into whose hands the Son of Man is betrayed. These holy men had come on a holy night. Remember, this is like, this is the, one of the highest holy feast days of the year. This is Passover night. They would have been cleaning their hands of, of their most holy meal. They would have been, been, been washing off the, the holy water while they were in the act of chasing Jesus down. They would have, been, would have been brushing the crumbs off of their clothes that they had just had during one of the holy meals. And through which that period, they are not to go into unholy places. And they have to have nothing to do or any contact with Gentiles. And then they're rubbing up against the Gentile soldiers in unclean areas. This is an entire betrayal of what they claim. Their, their, their holiness is all being shown as an absolute farce at the moment. 
Jesus was telling them, you know what you are doing uh, is wrong, and that is why you come with such force. William Hendrickson comments on this. He says, they came with swords and clubs to find the Prince of Peace. They, they come with, with lanterns and torches in the night to find the light of the world. This is an embodiment of what John says in chapter 1. John chapter 1 in his gospel, Jesus came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. These are the sinners into whose hands Jesus is being betrayed. But Jesus rests. He says, but, in verse 49 there, as if he points out, he doesn't want them to have a sense of victory. He just points out how guilty they are, how stupid they are, how cowardly they are. No one's feeling like an alpha male when they're in a crowd of 700 and there's one guy saying, I would, like, I would come if you gave me a notice. Totally unnecessary here. And yet, he says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus' kingdom is not one that advances by military might and conquest. Don't get me wrong, the Bible is by no means a pacifistic book. Okay? War in a, in a fallen world where there is evil tyrants, evil necessary. A, a necessary evil. War, okay. Uh, fighting, defending your family, okay. Not going to do it in the teeth, who is, who is that, uh, uh, risking your children's safety, totally godly. But we cannot think that ever would the kingdom of God grow by such means. It's not a kingdom that grows by military conquest or additional Christians in parliament or anything like that. It's not that kind of kingdom. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus will say to the pilot that belongs to this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my disciples would take up swords and fight. And as much as they do that, we can reason, they misunderstand the very nature of the kingdom. Jesus is not a kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom that will advance by military might and conquest, nor is it founded or started or established by the king that comes and defeats all of his earthly enemies in his first coming. Rather, Jesus' kingdom, and this is for us, Jesus' kingdom is one that advances bit by bit when ordinary people submit their life to the will of God in the scriptures. That's how it started. That's how it was exemplified by Jesus, then his apostles, and that's how he has only ever taken ground since then. When ordinary people, made from the dirt, are recreated and given the Holy Spirit, made new creatures who are empowered to simply obey the ordinary commandments of the Word of God in submission to God. That is how the kingdom advances. And it is founded, or started, the doors are opened by the king defeating not every earthly enemy all at once, but our greatest and most ultimate enemy, from whom all other enemies take their power, which is death, sin, and Satan. That is how the kingdom is established. That Jesus came and left the Roman Empire entirely in its own supremacy and grandiose nature. He didn't touch the Roman Empire except that he killed its ultimate head, the devil. He, he did not touch the, 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 the tyranny of the Jews, except that by giving to a people the true kingdom, a gospel of good news of peace and clean conscience, he took away the entire relevance of that money-making schemes in the temple. Jesus has started the kingdom and will start the kingdom, and at this point it's still future. He is establishing the kingdom by dying for us in our place, because we say our our ultimate enemy, 
who Jesus defends is death, sin, and Satan. He will pay for our sin. He will overcome Satan. He will overcome death in his triumphant resurrection. And yet those three things can be summed up under the banner of God's curse. That is what Jesus is coming to begin the process of totally undoing. That is the foundation that he blows apart. He, he removes God's curse against the human race in a, in a seed form. He has begun a second human race called in Christ, right? Christians are a second, second humanity. They're a new humanity. They're members of the, of the coming eternal world. This world is not our own in the sense that we belong not to Adam. We're not just humans. We're new humans. We're recreated into the image of Christ, not just born in the image of God. Jesus is beginning this new humanity. And so he dies, removes the curse of God over himself. And all those who find themselves in him by faith, all those who believe in Jesus, to you, Jesus, Jesus declares that the curse of God is removed from you. You may suffer effects of sin in this life. You will never suffer the punishment of sin. You may suffer the, the attacks of other people like Jesus did. You will never suffer the attacks of a hateful, vengeful God anymore. He is your friend. He is your saviour. He is your king for all those in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so that's why he didn't strike back. That's why he didn't try to defeat them. That's why he didn't, even though in John's gospel, I love this, I, I'm trying not to pull all the details from every gospel because we won't, we'll be here too long. I'm trying to stick with Mark, but it was John's gospel. The crowd comes up and they say, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he just uses God's name, which into the Greek and then into the English is translated, I am. Right? It's, it's like him saying, yep, that's me. But at the same time, using God's name, he says, I am. And the 600 people fall down flat on their backsides, clamoring with their swords in the dark. Then they all get back up and arrested. So, so Jesus is not letting them get any sense of the fact that they are really arresting him. He's just walking the path that God has given him Walk. He knows what God has ordained. And yet, even though he did that, he didn't, that was just a taste of the power he truly had. And he didn't unleash it on them to be free. But he went so that he could die. He died so that he could rise. And he rose so that he could defeat sin, death, and Satan, remove the curse of God for his people. But the disciples didn't get it. Do you see what they did in, in verse, uh, verse 40? Uh, seven, we're told what Peter does in cutting the, the high priest's representative ears off. And then in verse 50, uh, 50 it says they all fled him and left. And then verse... <laughs> in the dark. <clears throat> so here he is, right? They, they've all, they, are, they either fight or they run because they are not aware of what Jesus is doing. But, but isn't this a lesson for us? Uh, of course we're going to be making the wrong decisions for, for our family, what our family does, for our, our church and where we go and how involved we are and, and, and how we serve. Of course we'll be making the wrong decisions there. Of course we'll be making the wrong financial decisions. Of course we'll be making the wrong decisions about who we hang with, who we, where we go, what we, what we do with who. We'll be making those wrong decisions, making foolish decisions about what we say when. Uh, maybe like Peter, we're lashing out in anger. Maybe like the others, we're just fleeing in cowardice from confrontations of the gospel. Of course that will identify our life, folly, mess, chaos, mistakes. 
when we are not walking in step with the Spirit. Of course, if we're not praying, and, and God just kept it so easy. Don't think that there's all this prayer and Bible reading for the for the low-level varsity Christians, but once you get mature, there's this whole whole record of stuff that you have to be able to do, my friends. It is from the first to last, very simple. Having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and simply obeying what his word tells us to do. It, all that he told the disciples was, listen to my words, stay watchful over your sin, and pray. When we're in that state, when we are listening to the words of Jesus in Scripture, when we are praying and staying watchful over our own sins, we will be in a good position to respond, not react to whatever is going on about us. Needs arise, we'll respond in a godly way. Relationships start breaking down, there's some friction, we'll respond in a godly way. Somebody offends us or does something we're not a fan of, we'll respond in a godly way. An opportunity comes to speak the gospel or to get some kind of apologetic or somebody's insulting you, we'll respond in a godly way. If only, unlike the disciples, we are watchful and prayerful and aware of the words of Christ. There's our lesson. But they had none of this, therefore they were confused, they run off, they strike a guy with a sword. So Jesus' descent into the hands of sinners is totally unhelped by his disciples. He's abandoned by his closest friends, and he is now alone. Although this, verse 54 tells us that, that, Jesus, that Peter is following at a distance, and we'll see next week what really comes of that. It was no good. So thirdly, the, the next group of sinners, we've seen number one was the sinner Judas who betrayed him. The second group of sinners was the crowd who came upon him so unjustly. And thirdly now, we have the high priests, plural there, the high priests, Annas, or sometimes he is called Ananias, and Caiaphas. Annas and Caiaphas. In verse 53, we, we start meeting them. The crowd led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. So, so there's something we realize when we put the historical records and all the Gospels together. Ananias, uh, sorry, Annas, had been a high priest about 20 years ago. So he was the Jewish elected high priest over the nation, but the Romans took it upon themselves to allocate and move around the high priests. So they had chosen, after about five years, they removed him and gave, put his son in place. And then removed them, put his other son in place. I think a couple of them died. So after the last, over the last 20 years, picture this. The high priest, the most holy and, and, and righteous, the most powerful man in Israel, was, uh, was Annas. And after him came four of his sons. And now a son-in-law is in place called Caiaphas. This is called keeping it in the family. There's every reason, as I keep on pointing to his family, to say this is a mafia-run city. They have, imagine that, because not only are they the high priests, like they're not just, a, just doing the prayers, they are the Supreme Court justices. They are the, the, the ultimate and final say over what courtrooms are headed down, over who is in and who is out. So he's the head of the Sanhedrin, and in, in the court session that, that happens is in his own backyard. That's just screaming all kinds of dodgy. Where the, high, where the, where the Supreme Court Justice, the, the District Attorney, whatever you want to call it, where all of the court sessions are happening in his lounge room, with 70% of the, the court being his family members, you know true justice is going to be perverted. In John's Gospel, we get the idea, we, we see that actually the crowd takes Jesus to Annas first, because they recognized him as high priest, 
And then they went to Caiaphas, where they had the whole Sanhedrin meeting. Here, these two, Annas and Caiaphas, have been planning the death of Jesus for a long time. They are corrupt all the way to the top. There is nothing just that will happen tonight. And in fact, we see in verse 63 that they are entirely hypocritical. Stick with me to verse 63, just before the end of that passage. As Jesus admits a bit later on in the evening that he is in fact the Son of Man, the Son of the Blessed, who will be coming on cloud of heaven. Every bit a, 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 a claim to authority. As he does that, Caiaphas stands up and displays a show of utter grief and depression and sorrow. He, he tears his garments, which is a which is a, a very Hulk Hogan move to do. Right? He's got this big display of, I'm so distressed, look at how horrible this man's blasphemy is. It's all a show. This man is as gleeful and as happy as he has ever been, especially over the last three years, as he finally got Jesus to admit something that would get him the death penalty. He's loving this moment. He is so happy. He's rubbing his hands, but in front of the crowd, he displays a holy grief and sorrow. They are absolute hypocrites. They are the holiest men in the holiest priestly order, in the holiest nation in the world, supposedly. This is what they were meant to be. And yet what Jesus said stands true. He is before them in the hand of sins. And lastly, well, almost lastly, we are not even near lastly. Halfway, we're not halfway through, we're, we're towards the end, but halfway through the numbers, bear with me. Fourthly, we see the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 53. At the end of verse 53, all of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. So now you've got the 71 uh, uh, men, uh, a group called the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the day. And then verse 55 tells us the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Now, now that phrase, we just read over that, and all we read is, yeah, they're all together, they're doing a court, court session. Wrong. That language that he just used is an introduction, is a bit of a, a window into the fact that this whole night is filled with utter illegality. There is nothing just about what happens in this court. It is all for show. So number one, the Jews have a law that you can't do trials by night. You need to be able to see people. Uh, people can get away with stuff in the evening. It's got to be during the daytime and, and, and under bright lights. Right? That, that was part of the Jewish law. And one of the other Jewish laws that they had was that you're not allowed to do uh, to have a, a court session like this on the day of or the day before a holy feast day. Now, are we or are we not in the middle of the Passover feast? <laughs> they absolutely are. Secondly, whenever you make a, a, a charge against somebody, like in today's court, you have to have the charge already made for the, for the accused to come in and face their charge. You're not allowed to just get a guy in, like they've done, and say, we know the sentence, we want him dead. Now, does anybody have any proof against him for which we can kill him? That's not legal justice. It's in the middle of the night, which is against the law. There was supposed to be 24 hours in between condemning somebody with a charge before the sentence was ruled was carried out in capital offences, so that they would make sure that there was plenty of time for decisions to be reversed, for more witnesses to come forward. They were very careful, and yet in this, there would be nine hours between his arrest and his crucifixion the next day. 
I have so many rules around this because they cared about, well, they were supposed to care, handed down from Moses, they were supposed to care about wrongly accusing and killing people, but they did not care. It even tells us here that they were seeking witnesses. Or it told us that they were bribing them. And then even when they came together and they colluded their little stories and they, they wrote out their script, even then... His scripts didn't agree. Even then, these guys just kept on stuffing up the lines, and the Sanhedrin was getting so annoyed. They should have thrown the court case out, but they kept saying, well, does anybody else want to agree precisely with what the last guy just said, because we need two witnesses to make this formal? Another guy, yeah, I get the picture. They all like it. He comes up, tries to repeat the last guy, gets it wrong. They, they simply cannot agree. And this is all to fulfill that, that condemnation that God hands down of sin. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17 to 19, God says, There are six things God hates. Yes, seven. That's a, a Jewish way of saying He really hates these seven things. Haughty eyes, lying tongues, hands that shed innocent blood, hearts that devise wicked schemes, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness that breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. This, this Sanhedrin, supposed to safeguard holiness and justice in the nation, is enacting the most illegal court trial that has ever occurred in human history. They are sinners, and they are trying to condemn not just a righteous man, but the most, the most righteous man. And thrown in with them is the fifth group of sinners, the false witnesses, who, who God has just said that he hates that, he hates false witnesses, he hates lies. If you are found to be lying in the court of law, in Jewish, Jewish scriptures, you found the lying as a witness, and they found that out, you would receive whatever punishment you were trying to inflict on somebody else. It doesn't happen here. They have no problem with false witnesses. These people are coming up and bearing false witness against Jesus. And yet here he is, silent like a lamb in 1661. He, he did not answer. He was remaining silent, as Isaiah 53 tells us he would be, like a lamb being led to his, to his slaughter. And then uh, Caiaphas stands up. He's just sick of it. They, they really thought this was going to be easier than it has been. It didn't seem that hard. Get two guys to agree on something Jesus had done. They couldn't do it. So he stands up and he asks him, are you going to make no answer? Jesus remains quiet. And then in verse 6, uh, end of verse 61, look what he says. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now he says, Son of the Blessed, because the Jews don't like blaspheming and doing unrighteous things, you see? And so this man, instead of using God's name, they would, in, uh, they would replace it with another word, like blessed. So, so they, you know, they, they don't offend God unnecessarily. What a nice guy. What a good fellow as he's trying to murder God. So he says, you know, are you the son of the blessed? And here, Jesus' answer gives us, gets to the deepest truth of the evening as this is happening. And yet incriminates him in their eyes. He, he mixes together Psalm 110, which said that the Christ, the King of God, would sit at God's right hand. And he mixes in also Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, which says that that divine king would ride on clouds with heaven, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, that is God, and was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So, so that language of Son of Man is not talking about the fact that he's a man. The Son of Man language is talking about the fact that he's the divine king. 
So here Jesus says, you're asking if I'm the Christ, the King. You're asking if I'm the Son of God. He says, I am. That's God's name again. I am. And you will see the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. He has told this high priest what he told his disciples back in Mark 13. When I am made king, my first act will be pouring out the spirit of grace onto my people, the church, at Pentecost. My second act will be pouring out my spirit of judgment onto Jerusalem and destroying the temple. There's, there's some who will take this verse to be future, and maybe so. But the ultimate point is this. Jesus is saying, high priest, enemy, all who oppose Christ, the next time you see me, I'll be in the clouds. I'll have all dominion, all glory, all power, ruling from the eternal kingdom, judging my enemies. That's what he says. That's what he declares. And the high priest says, this is blasphemy. He understood what he was saying, claiming to be God, the king. He tore his clothes, and they gathered around him, treating him, mocking him as a prophet, spitting on him, and they all agreed as witnesses, this deserves death. And yet, as we wrap up here and understand all of this, if you see one thing, what's Mark showing us here? What, what's the point of the story? It's this, that sinners oppose God, and God will always fulfill his plan through Christ. There is nothing more unstoppable in the universe than God's purposes that he has ordained to take place through his son, Jesus. And, and here is God using all of their sin to bring about the great gospel truth. That this son of man was not being taken against his will. So far we, we may have thought that this Jesus is being unjustly tried, he's being unfairly treated, the mob of the day of God in we need to see this as good, gracious news. The son of man, who now has all authority, dominion and power in a kingdom, has come intentionally to the earth in love to receive a greater measure of a kingdom that includes people saved by his blood. This Jesus is, is not being overpowered in any sense. He is in all of his meekness submitting his power and glory to the will of the Father so that he would be handed over into the hands of sinful men. And as the story goes on, whipped, destroyed in his body, pinned up onto a Roman cross, and dying, touching his human humanity, touching his body. His body will expire and he will die so that the curse of God can be, can be relieved. So that the judgment of God can be satisfied. So that the heart of God can be fulfilled when he says he will judge sinners and he will save sinners. He will judge sinners. He'll never let a sinner sin go unpunished. And yet he will, he will not punish many sinners. How does that work? The Son of Man, the judge, became the judge so that your sins can be judged and yet you go free. That is what Jesus is doing here. Believe that today, Christian. Believe it and rest in it that this wonderful, marvelous mystery has been done so that you don't need to work into the kingdom. You don't need to impress God. You have been purchased by his blood. He loves you. And if you're not a Christian, the call is clear. As Jesus said to the, to the high priest, you will never take the king off his throne. You will never alter the judgment of the ultimate judge. So your only command is believe. There's no other option. It's not believe or else. It's not believe or there's a harder way. It's just believe. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the king. Jesus died. His blood can cleanse you of your sin. Believe. 
receive those promises into the kingdom. Be filled with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we lift our eyes up to you this morning. And this is so clear from this passage. Only from you could our salvation come. Millennia after millennia, humans tried to, through their own false religion or their own false worship or good deeds or false sacrifices to appease a, a God they knew but could never enter into relationship with. Even the Israelites who have been given so much grace and mercy, Lord, many entered in and yet many did not understand. Even, even they were, were being were being filled with anticipation that there must be a final sacrifice. How many lambs have to die? Father God, you have you have shown through history and through your word that the only thing that can save is a God-given lamb. Only you have devised the plan by which we may be saved. And that is why Acts 4.12 tells us there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved except for Jesus. Well, we don't need another one. He is, he is everything we require. He is everything you have required. And therefore, in him, we, we rest all of our hope and all of our trust. God, God make, us, make us to trust him. As, as, we, as we struggle with lack of assurance over our own salvation, or as we struggle with the reality of our indwelling sin, let us to rest and trust in Jesus. He has accomplished what we cannot accomplish. He has done what I could not do. Father God, as we, as we struggle with the situations around us in life of affliction and opposition and, and struggling and trials, let us rest in Him. He has accomplished His kingdom. He has done it. He is the victor. We, we have a victory ahead of us, even if now is difficult. And Lord God, if we are still in our sins, if there is somebody here today who is still guilty in their sins, whose conscience is not clean, who has no hope of eternal life and forgiveness of God, they only know their own sin. And, and, and just God is punishment. God, today, assure them of your life. Assure them of your grace. And give to them a heart that trusts in the, in the substitutionary death, the triumphant resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in their place. Father God, we, we honor you and we give you glory in the name of your King, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said? Amen. Amen.